Where is the quietest place that you've ever been? That wasn't rhetorical. You can answer that question. You're going to answer my silent question with silence. <clears throat> Where's the quietest place you've ever been? Nobody? Anybody? We have a lot, we have a lot of work to do. Bueller, right? <clears throat> Say it again. This room, right? Now. This room, right? <laughs> That's right. Well done. Awesome. I think the problem with the quietest place you've ever been is you often don't know when you're there, <laughs> right? Um, I think personally, like when you get there, it also starts to feel really uncomfortable when you actually are there. So you feel it. Like quiet spaces are endangered habitats, right? It's with this kind of idea that in the 80s, there was an acoustic ecologist. And all, all of you, like, humanities, history majors out there, if you want something that really has a narrow job field, be an acoustic ecologist. <clears throat> but this guy named Gordon Hempton uh, began studying in the 80s. And he went on a quest to find the quietest place in America. And his methodology was really simply just kind of went with a microphone and a tape recorder and he just started recording places and and it was it started to kind of chart on his uh, places when he could record an entire tape and not hear a plane not hear a voice not hear a car not hear something man-made that was polluting that sound he was trying to find a natural environment um, unpolluted by these things. By the way, I first found out about this whole project and this whole thing uh, a few weeks ago when I was hiking with some pastor friends of mine and we were at Okanichi Mountain uh, Trail, which is like this amazing uh, hike that opens up into this breathtaking view of power lines and, and like you, you hear this awesome hum of Interstate 85, you know? And so we're talking about quiet spaces. Hempton found out after about a decade of looking for this place and listening for this place, there are only about a dozen of these places that he would characterize as quiet spaces in like the lower 48 states. Only about a dozen in the continuous 48 states. In his search, he then like honed in even closer uh, on this forded stretch of the Ho River Trail in Olympic National Park. Has anyone been to Olympic National Park? Oh, you guys are so proud of that too. <laughs> Have you been to this place in Olympic National Park? It's, it's about a two-hour hike, depending on how fast you are, beyond the visitor center. And you'll find, if you're looking for it, exactly in the right spot, on the right coordinate, a red rock on a mossy branch. And it looks something like that. And it's at those coordinates right here. This is a secret spot. This is the quietest one square inch of America. Right here. <laughs> and to preserve this, Gordon's been doing a lot of work, right? He's asking airlines and utility companies not to reroute flights that fly over this to keep and preserve this place as the quietest place in America. But the crazy thing is when you listen to his field recording 
of this spot, and you can go online, there's a documentary about this, you can listen to this tape. You actually hear all sorts of sounds. You hear birds and bugs and water and wind. But there's this idea that within that silence, and, and there was a composer, John Cage, who did this with this famed composition 433, which is just silence. But within that silence, there's always going to be multitudes. Hempton, in Hempton's words, he says, the silence is not the absence of something, but it's the presence of everything. It's this presence, this excess that Hempton really seeks to protect and to carve out in this project. You see, by focusing on preserving just like a square inch of silence, Hempton and his followers are hoping to grow silence. Silence takes a lot of work, he's finding out. But silence also begets more silence. In the same way that we assume that noise pollutes, you've heard about noise pollution, a little bit of noise ruins the whole sphere. The hope is that silence is also contagious and that it, it will spread that a square inch then spreads to a square foot, to a square acre, to a mile and beyond. Because he's not trying to walk around like a librarian shushing people to maintain this, but, but instead he wants anyone that, that kind of draws near to this to be drawn into the silence. He's trying to cultivate a posture not to get in the way of silence. And, and I'm sure he's gotten better at this over the course of these decades as he's done it, to even having the senses to hear silence when he gets there. So as we move into the fall, I think we can get a lot of wisdom from this kind of eccentric project that Hampton did. You see, we'll be considering together some practices to experience and to extend God's presence into our world. And I think a lot of the same logic holds with God's presence as, as Hempton had with this silent project. In the same way, the silence of the Ho River isn't really about like pressing a mute button, but instead it's about spreading. It's about renewing in a renewing vision for attention and for care. We, we find the same sort of vision in the Bible and God's story about God's presence. It's been said, um, a preacher, theologian, A.W. Tozer once said that God's presence is the central fact of Christianity. Like before all the other stuff, God's presence is the cornerstone of Christianity. Not just that God is there, that we can rely on him, a simple fact of life, but that God is present. God is available. God is with us. This has been really articulated um, in the Bible by the concept of, of God dwelling in a temple. Have you ever thought of that when you read through the Bible and like you'll even get to these long narrative stretches where there's instructions for how to build the temple and it's, it's actually pretty like 
practical. Like you could probably sit down and with a measuring tape and a bunch of like acacia wood and build something similar, you know, to scale. This temple shape pervades the whole of God's story. Like it starts in Eden, right? I know the Tuesday night group is reading in Genesis. When you read when you're reading in Genesis, try to consider this this kind of temple image that's happening over top of all this. Like when you're reading the 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 Genesis one and two and three story, you have Eden and it's this garden where God walks with and among his cre- his creation. It's a place that says where where God dwells, where God cultivates, where God delights, where God even rests. The whole cosmos was God's temple. This overlap, this communion between creation and creator. But this sanctuary gets disturbed by humanity's sin and disobedience. That presence, especially humanity's ability to attend to it, gets distorted, it gets polluted. The rest of the story then has all these like ad hoc kind of set up dwelling places, little square inches of presence that are going with God's people. No less potent, no less real, but certainly less than ideal, less than the whole creation praising God. God is certainly still present. God is available and God is with us in these places. This presence is particular, but it hopes also to expand, to extend to the ends of the earth. That's the vision. Then, like, I think you guys have probably also already passed it, but, like, take Abraham's story, for example. He's, he, God sends Abraham to a new land and forms him with Sarah as a new people. In Genesis 26-24, God then appears to his son, Isaac, and says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of Abraham. Then, like, consider Moses as you start to to move towards Exodus. Moses is rescued by God God rescues his people through Moses from oppression and slavery and and he guides them. Guides them through the wilderness in a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. He feeds them with manna and even when they complain quail, it's absurd. It comes out of their ears. He gives them so abundantly. God provides. God is present. God is available. God is with them even in wilderness, and, and maybe some of you guys need to know that today. Like it feels like wilderness right now, that God was with them in wilderness and God is with us in wilderness. Or think about, uh, about David. Maybe prior to Jesus, prior to Paul, David is probably the most significant guy in the Bible, person in the Bible. It says, David sets his heart after God's heart. All the while, he, he bloodies his hands. He disobeys. He does all these things. And David tries to build God a house. Because how could David live in a palace and God doesn't 
God lives in a tent. David tries to build him a house, a place to dwell in the Holy of Holies with but set apart. And God says, I never asked you for a house and you're not the one to build it for me. Even in his violence, even in his like godly ambition, God is with David. He's available, he's present. And then with Solomon, who then builds the biggest, gaudiest, most patriotic, formalized temple you could think of that says a lot about Solomon, probably more about Solomon than about God. But God, even in all those trappings, God is with them. God is present to them, and God is for them. He's available. So then you, you fast forward many, many years, and we're given the fulfillment of this present available with us God in this baby born to an unwed Middle Eastern refugee teen mother Emmanuel God with us Jesus like the the tip off here is when we read John's gospel and it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us we read over that because we've read it so many times that that means God pitched his tent, God put on skin. This tabernacle, this temple came to us in a person. And we were expecting it, but we weren't expecting it. The message paraphrase says, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Think about that next time your next door neighbor puts a for sale sign up and then it says sold and then you're kind of nervous about who's moving in next door to you. That God moves into the neighborhood and God is with us. He's near us. He's involved with us. It says, and we be, it says God moved into the neighborhood and we beheld his glory. We beheld it as we watched what it would look like for God to be with us. For the God who is with us to set his very human hands to per- like perfectly and personally practicing presence. We got to see it in 3D, in, in living color. We got to see what it looks like when God reconciles. Like, and that mostly looks like Jesus hanging on a cross, looking down in pain, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't get it. They can't and they won't get it, but I forgive them and you should forgive them too, God. That is what reconciliation looks like. We see what it looks like when God submits, and we we just did a whole series about this master story of, of Jesus becoming obedient even to death, death on a cross. But we also saw in his life when he's talking with all these disciples who also don't get it. If, if, if you're new to Christianity or you're old to Christianity, but you just feel like you're really bad at it, read the Gospels. It's very encouraging. Jesus is with people who just don't get it, and he's so patient with them. In Matthew 20, he's talking to his friends who are vying for, for prestige, for a position. He says, you know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority but not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must become servants. We get to hear, we get to see what this looks like. When God comes in Jesus, we we get to see what it looks like when God gathers people around the table. We get to see that in all of these notorious meals with 
outcasts, tax collectors, prostitutes, the worst, the least, the lost, the littlest, the closest to death. We get to see it when he's calling to the highways and the byways. We get to see it also in his first miracle in John uh, 4, John 2 maybe, at, at Cana. When Jesus is at a party and the party's winding down and Jesus makes the party even better for people who won't even know whether, whether or not the wine's good, <laughs> right? That's how God spreads a table before us. We also see this table at the Last Supper, remembering God's deliverance of his people from exile in that Passover meal and eating and delivering that, or eating that, that meal of deliverance and remembrance across from someone who's going to sell him out for silver, across from someone who's going to deny him three times. God extends his table to us. We get to hear what it's like when God prays. Have you ever, like it's so normal to us that Jesus is praying in the Gospels, but have you ever considered that God is praying to God in Jesus? And we get to hear what those words are, and, and we get to make those words our words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see this temple shaped to even that prayer. Heaven and earth are becoming the middle part of that Venn diagram. We get to see what it looks like for Jesus to proclaim the good news. Like, probably not holding a sign in the pit. I know most of you guys aren't UNC people. They did this in Gainesville. They do it everywhere. That's not what it looked like when Jesus was proclaiming the good news. It looked more like Isaiah 61 or Luke 4 where he says, I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach good news to the poor. Freedom, deliverance to the captives, a light to blind eyes. Jubilee. <laughs> Release. And we also see Jesus like the quintessential present one being with, being with kids, says, suffer those little kids come to me because I'm going to build the kingdom with them. <laughs> and being present to, to the poor. Like Jesus says, you won't always have me, but you'll always have the poor, and in that way you'll always have me. So you take care of them, you're taking care of me. And in this whole logic, this temple-shaped ongoing renewal then gets recast when Jesus um, sends his spirit. He says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'm going to send a friend who's going to stay with you, who's going to empower you. And then if you start reading Paul, you start to hear this scandalous thing that says, you, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are ones in whom God dwells. That's why Paul always writes to people and calls them holy ones. Because they're the temple. That those who are in Christ become the place where Christ is in them and dwells. This whole narrative moves towards Revelation 21, this end point for us. And I don't want to spoil too much because Sarah's going to get here next week. And it says... This is John's vision. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, going up, no, coming down 
from heaven with God, made, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is here with humanity. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be with them as their God. God, our all in all, present, available, eternally with us. That's where this is all going. So you start to see this theme developing. I hope you do. I hope it's not just me. I think similarly we have, we have songs that help us with this theme. I think that's what the Psalms are mostly about. They're anthems of this dogged presence that Israel sings together, that makes them a people. I think about today's Psalm, Psalm 46, features all of these presence words. Like, it says, that God is our refuge, this place that we dwell in. God is our help in trouble. If you're in trouble, God will help you in that trouble, not just pull you out of it. God is within the city. And then it hits this refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us. My clicker's terrible, I'm sorry. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And they can't stop saying that, so they say it again. It says, I will be exalted among the nations in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us, is our fortress. The hope of this psalm and the hope of many other psalms, the hope of the psalm that we're going to say together for our confession a little later, Psalm 139, is not just for help or protection from bad circumstances. It's not just a reset or a restart or even a removal, but it is that God will be present to this world. Even in its sin, even in its death, and that somehow that presence will transform it. That that presence will transform us. A transforming presence. That we'd walk away from an encounter with God's presence, more able to be aware of just how near God is. Like that's where the change is. When they're singing these songs, begging for God's presence, it's not that God's far off and needs to come near, it's that we need to have our eyes open to how near God already is. That we would grow in our affection and in our ability to point that out to ourselves and also to point it out to others. Like, that's what proclaiming the good news is, is witnessing, being people who see and sense and feel and know God's presence and can describe that to others and help them do that too. That we'll have our imaginations expanded because this presence is expansive. It's grace-filled, it's kingdom coming. God's presence is and wants to be bigger in us and in our world. It's like that one, square vent, that one square inch of silence that wants to grow because we've started to do the things necessary to, to attend to that square inch. 
N.T. Wright talks about psalms like this when he says, psalms not only exist, let's see if we can get there. It's like every professor you've ever had. Psalms not only exist, uh, that we are called to live at the intersection of God's space and our space, of heaven and earth, to be, in other words, temple people. They call us to live at the intersection of sacred space, the temple and the holy land that surrounds it, but also at the space, the human space, the rest of the world where idolatry and injustice still wreak their misery. There's another translation of this psalm, Psalm 46, that says, that talks about the sea's waters roar and roil. <laughs> Mountains heave in its surge, a stream its, its rivulets gladden God's town. Do, do you see that clash, that intersection? Everything is going to hell, and God is still going to show up right there. The, the waters roar and roil. Do you see how this one square inch of presence grows even in the midst of unrest, even in the midst of chaos? When Psalms talk about the seas or the waters, that's the place where bad stuff happens. That's why, that's why far previous generations always had sea monsters because that's where chaos is. That's where people go to die. And that's where God is showing up in this Psalm. God's presence doesn't require ideal conditions. It doesn't use like a monastery for a jumping off point here. It's not something to be protected or isolated, but cherished and extended. That's how God's presence works. That's why I love that we have the doors open today. I also love how we do morning prayer on Wednesdays. We had a really awesome morning prayer um, this past Wednesday. It's great because like, you're praying, and we use a prayer book, and you're praying these, these prayers that, that want so much to be kind of internal and profound and sacred, but often you have to yell over a city bus that's coming through, or you get interrupted by a neighbor that you know or maybe don't know who just wants a cup of coffee. And it, it does this thing. I've been doing this almost every week for the last three years. And it does something to you because it, it helps you understand that, that you can encounter God, not under ideal circumstances. And praise the Lord so, because most of our days don't have those circumstances. Can I get an amen from parents? <laughs> In this psalm, there's all of this noise in all of this discord and all this pollution and mountains and oceans and cities and nations and armies and kingdoms and they're all crashing and clashing and making noise and then cutting through it all is the Lord's voice. That's probably a whole nother sermon for another day. Because we know from like Psalm 29 that the Lord's voice can be still and small, but it can also break the cedars of Kadesh. <laughs> it's got that power. But this voice sounds out, and it says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Get those two, those two directives. Quiet. <laughs> Another translation 
translation just says, enough. And, and when we read that uh, at worship planning this week, it reminded me of how Jesus rebukes Peter when, he, when they come for him in Gethsemane and Peter lops off a guard's ear. And Jesus just says, enough, put your sword down. That's not how it's going to be. And then he, he even heals the guard's ear. It says, be still. Don't do it for yourself. I'm doing it for you. And then the other part of that, know that I am God. Not just any God, lowercase g, but the God who is here. The God who is in control, the God who will intercede, the God who is present to you, for you, and with you. The God of help in ages past and our hope for years to come. God is with us. Craig Barnes says, and this, is, this kind of cuts at, at the whole reason that we're going to study this over the next seven weeks. So God is always present, but usually not apparent. God is always present, but usually not apparent. So those will be our two prongs of, this, of our study and practice this fall. Because presence takes an awful lot of practice. But practice is really useless with, without an abiding reliance on God's presence and a growing awareness of it. We'll consider how we meet Christ in the world already because he's already gone ahead of us. He's already there. He's begging for our attention and our affection. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. But we'll also consider the ways that we extend that presence, that we like carry that presence with us out into the neighborhood, into our families, into our workplaces. God's people have always kind of struggled with how to do this well, because if you're not careful, you carry God's presence in a really like triumphalistic, self-reliant way. Like you, you say that's true, but it, don't, know, don't know that by looking at you. Ways that hold, like we want to learn ways that hold that master story from Philippians 2, that mind of Christ in our dashboard at all times. I've, I personally feel like the burden and the privilege of this. Much of my adult life has been trying to figure out what it means to live into my own name. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, they named me Christopher, which means one who bears Christ. Like, so often I, I wanted my... Um, roommate who his dad was from India his his he grew up in a huge family and all the kids have like Bible names like Paul and Michael and Mary and Elizabeth and all those names the good big Catholic family but all their middle names are Indian so my roommate's middle name was Sundar which means pretty you know <laughs> like meanwhile I have one who bears Christ. And as a college student, that's real hard. <laughs> and so I'm learning. And I, and I want you guys to learn what that means uh, for you. You can be like lowercase Christophers. Not, not after me, but ones who bear Christ. That's the goal as we, as we extend God's presence to our friends, to our neighbors, to our strangers that we come across. This sort of two-prong approach takes practice, and it takes practice together. That we might develop rhythms 
and paces that allow us the sort of time it takes to be still and know that God is God. That we can also tap into a rich heritage of the Bible story, the church tradition, that we slip into the streams of many wise and faithful Christians as we do this. All those practices that I listed and all the practices that we'll be detailing are things that we see Jesus doing and that the church has known about and that we often just neglect. We're not inventing stuff here. We're, we're not innovating. That we, we primarily are, are going to try to grow in our ability together this fall to be humble witnesses as we sing Christ's presence. That humble witness is antithetical to arrogant colonizer, right? Like, um, that, that will grow in our ability to be poets, not like salespeople, right? Poets always kind of are aware of the subtext, the things, the little things that are happening subterranean, and they're able to describe it at a slant, uh, what's really going on. In that way, they almost talk about the future, right? Or that we'll be able, as we practice these things, the more you practice, the more comfortable you get, the more secure you can be, so you don't have to be aggressive. I've been watching a lot of youth soccer this weekend. <laughs> And it's really hard to be secure when you don't have fundamentals. So you just completely over, overcome that by just being aggressive. Like we got this kid who, he needs to be sponsored by like Tide for the amount of times he's rolling around on the ground, right? So together we're going to learn how to be secure rather than just merely aggressive. We're also going to be expectant. So much of our lives are spent being numb can't hear silence because we have this ringing in our ears because we're never used to hearing silence and we run away from it. That we'll also, in our confidence, we'll learn how to be bold rather than timid. All because God is present to us. God is available to us. God is with us.